Hello, my rebels. Today is Brexit Day. Oh boy, the deep state tried to stop that and they delayed it for three years, but it finally happened. <laughs> I'm going to show you some funny vids, some classic Nigel Farage, and also what I think is the funniest Boris Johnson video. I just, I've watched it 10 times and I still uh, laugh. It's crazy. I'll show you that. Or you'll hear the audio of it because it's a podcast, but oh boy, you got to see, you know, Boris Johnson is a visual person, that shocking mop of platinum hair, that disheveled suit, and that funny grin that he looks at you while he's doing something ridiculous. You got to see it. Please get the video version of this podcast. Um, you can do that by going to premium.rebelnews.com and just becoming a premium subscriber. It's eight bucks a month, no big deal, but it's a big deal to us because it lets us pay the bills. And you get the video version of this podcast and Sheila Gunn-Reed's show and David Menti's show. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, Britain is free. By the time you hear this, Brexit will have happened. It's January 31, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I'm a Canadian with few ties to the United Kingdom. I had only been there once in my whole life when I was a teenager, until much later when I met Tommy Robinson and went there a lot. Uh, since meeting Tommy, I've learned more about that country than perhaps I wish I had, especially about its problems. But it's important to all Canadians to know what happened in the UK today and how it happened, whether or not your ties to that sceptered isle, as Shakespeare called it. Oh, let me indulge myself. Here's what Shakespeare wrote in a time when intellectuals actually loved their own countries instead of specializing in hating it. This is so wonderful. This royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in a silver sea which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. Oh my God, isn't that amazing? It's true. I love that one part, a stone set in the silver sea and that that sea serves as a wall, as a moat against less happier lands. Exactly. I think the English Channel is the best thing that ever happened to the United Kingdom. Certainly, you know, the Second World War proved that, and the European Union as a project, in a way it undid the geography of the English Channel a bit, and it removed those special happinesses of the UK and replaced them with a continental sensibility, French, German, and you know, being French and German, that's fine for France and Germany, but why should that be the way in the United Kingdom? And that's the thing about the, United, uh, the European Union. It was more than a United Nations. It was more than just a talk shop or a meeting place. It was a parliament. It was a legislature. It, it has a parliament, a court. It has joint policies. They're even planning a European Union army. 
all of which are superior to those of its constituent countries. That's not the British way. I understand the early ideas of it, unite the continent in commerce for prosperity and to avoid a third world war. I get it, but that's not what it turned into these days. I didn't understand this years ago. I didn't know who it was when I first stumbled across a viral video of a great Brit, classic, as if he's from an earlier era, named Nigel Farage. What a great name that is. When I saw this years ago, and I didn't understand it. I knew I liked it, but I didn't understand it. I didn't know what UKIP meant. I didn't know why the pound symbol was the party's symbol. But I knew I liked this guy, and he was trouble in a good way. Maybe even a British version of Donald Trump, you might say. Remember this? You have the charisma of a damp rag and the appearance of a low-grade bank clerk. And the question that I want to ask, the question that I want to ask, that we're all going to ask, is who are you? I'd never heard of you. Nobody in Europe had ever heard of you. It goes on like that. It's, you should Google that clip. He, he makes fun of him as some mid-rank bank clerk and why should any Brit care about it? you got to Google that. Uh, how can you not like that guy? Well, I learned UKIP stood for UK Independence Party, and the pound was a symbol of independence, not submitting to a bland homogenization, not using the euro. Thank God they never signed up for that globalist currency. UKIP kept gaining as the European Union went wrong and wronger, as the traditional British parties went wrong. UKIP was a specific antidote to the problems of the EU, open borders, mass immigration, loss of sovereignty. But they were also a general antidote to the establishment, the media, big corporations, transnational banks, whatever. They were an all-purpose group of dissidents, and Nigel Farage kept them respectable enough that they kept edging up in their votes every time. So a few years back, the Conservative Party thought, oh, this is a threat. Let's call their bluff. Let's have a referendum on leaving, on Brexit, as they called it. And when the UKIP loses, people will forget about that flight of fancy and they'll come back to the Conservatives. But wouldn't you know it? The deplorables won. That's what it would be called in America. In the UK, it was a combination of the working class and whatever remnant of nationalism there was and some conservatives and people who just detested the establishment. It was a protest vote, sure, but it was a positive vote too, and they won. Brexit won. Everyone was against them, but the people. They won. The media, all the political parties, including the conservatives who claimed they supported Brexit. The campaign for the Remain side, as it was called, was bad and got worse and more desperate by the day they literally called their campaign Project Fear. That's not a name that was given to it by critics. They called it that themselves. They, they threatened unemployment, epidemics even, inflation. And my favorite predict, prediction of doom, the claim from the British Sandwich Association that if Brexit happened, you wouldn't be able to get a good sandwich anymore. This was hitting close to home. Remember this clip? But certainly... There would be serious problems in terms of some of the fresh ingredients we, we bring in from the European Union and also from overseas, if, particularly if we have problems at the ports and uh, we can't get ingredients through because uh, they're all fresh and uh, don't have a very long shelf life and we've got no chance of stockpiling fresh ingredients. So I think the, the answer from the sandwich industry is going to be that it's going to limit the amount of choice that consumers have if we suddenly crash out of Brexit in the way that's being talked about. 
You know, I tore up my lifetime membership in the British Sandwich Association after I saw that. I, I don't get it. I mean, you spend your life climbing the sandwich ladder, the top of the greasy pole. You're the boss now. You're the president of the British Sandwich Association. You're the highest heights. Heavy sits the crown. You're up there. It's what you always, you know, you're, this is your moment. And you sell it out for a cheap remainder line. It will take years for the British Sandwich Association to get its credibility back after that. I, um, where's he now? All right, enough of that. The Brexit, here's one. The Leave campaign won. David Cameron, he resigned. Theresa May took over the Conservatives, and she proceeded to spend three years delaying and avoiding. It's as if in the 2016 American election, Donald Trump won, but had been kept out of office by tricks and shenanigans for three years. That's what happened in the UK. For three years, the largest British voter turnout in history, 17 million people voted to Brexit, more than any other vote in history. They were told their vote did not count, told by the courts, told by that obnoxious Speaker of the House, told by MPs of all parties who started asking for a do-over. They were trying to undo the express will of the people on a clear question. They were refusing to accept the outcome of the democratic referendum. After Brexit, after Brexit passed, Nigel Farage did a bit of a victory lap. It was amazing. Look at this. Isn't it funny? You know, when I came here 17 years ago and I said that I wanted to lead a campaign to get Britain to leave the European Union, you all laughed at me. Well, I have to say, you're not laughing now, are you? After Brexit passed, Farage sort of retired, took it easy a bit. But after three years of the establishment dodging, Farage doubled down in a way. He had left the, the uh, UKIP party, so he came back and created a new party called the Brexit Party, good name. And they absolutely crushed it in the European Union parliamentary elections last spring. In fact, they were the largest uh, party in the entire European continent in terms of seat count. And they said they were going to contest the British general election just a few months ago. Now, this genuinely panicked the Conservatives. Would, could Nigel Farage actually become the prime minister? Well, sure, why not? If all the other parties were anti-democratic, if they were all in collusion against the people's will, why not? Just to clean them out. Well, quirky Boris Johnson realized maybe Nigel Farage, this is Boris here, that's him. That's him when he was mayor of London. Oh, look at that guy. How on earth did he make it as far as he did? He got stuck. Oh, look at him there. He loved him his bicycles. Uh, Farage realized, Boris Johnson realized that maybe Nigel Farage couldn't actually win and become prime minister, but he could certainly make Boris Johnson lose. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, down he goes. Down he goes. Oh, look at that. Look at that. What's he doing? I, oh, whoops. Whoops. And he had that great shock of hair, that, that white hair. Funny guy, he all, but the funniness was part of it. He was never, he was never so, yeah, he could roll with it because he wasn't that, 
I mean, every politician is vain, but he sort of rolled with his goofiness. Anyways, um, so Boris Johnson realized that Nigel Farage maybe couldn't win, but he could certainly make Johnson lose. So Boris Johnson promised a full Brexit, not a fake halfway version. And in return, Nigel Farage said that his Brexit party in the last uh, national election would not contest safe conservative seats. It was like a, an electoral pact. And wouldn't you know it, Boris Johnson now has a very strong majority. And tonight at 11 p.m. UK time, Brexit happened. The UK did leave the European Union. Now, before I stop talking about Johnson, can I show you my favorite Boris Johnson video of all time? Look at this, and then rewind it and watch it again. What do you do to relax? What do you do to switch off? Uh, I, I, I like to paint. Um, oh, I make things. I like to... What do you make? I make... I have a thing where I make models of... I mean, when I was in like, well, Mayor of London, we build a beautiful... I make buses. You make models of buses. I make models of buses. See, they're going to be do. in Downing Street. So, so what I do, no, what I don't make models of buses, but what I, I make is, I get, I get old, um, I don't know, wooden crates. Yeah. Right? And then I paint them. And they, and they have two, two I suppose it's a, wine, it's a box that's been used to contain two, two wine bottles, right? Right. And it will have a, 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 a dividing thing. Yeah. And I turn it into a bus, and I, so I, I put passengers. You really want to know this? You're making, you the, you're making make, buses. Make, yeah, you're I making paint, cardboard I, buses. I paint, no, okay, I that's paint, what you do to enjoy yourself. I paint, no, I paint no. the passengers enjoying themselves okay, great. on the wonderful bus. Great. Do you know what any of that <laughs> meant? That is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Who was working harder to keep a straight face there? That interviewer who was just, like, he was, he was like that the whole time, or Johnson himself. That is so wonderful. That moment was so wonderful. Anyways, um, Boris Johnson, the prime minister who made Brexit reality, but the spiritual prime minister of this moment, at least, is Nigel Farage. Here are some of his comments from the European Parliament in his last speech there. Indeed, there's an historic battle going on now across the West, in Europe, America, and elsewhere. It is globalism against populism. And you may loathe populism, but I tell you a funny thing, it's becoming very popular. <laughs> and it has great benefits. No more financial contributions. No more European Court of Justice. No more common fisheries policy. No more being talked down to. No more being bullied. No more Guy Verhofstadt. I mean, I mean, what's not to like? I know you're going to miss us. I know you want to ban our national flags, but we're going to wave you goodbye. And we'll look forward in the future to working with you as sovereign. If you disobey the rules, you get cut off. That's so great. And remember, this is the European Union. So... A lot of the other MEPs, as they're called, members of the European Parliament, were either leftists from the UK or from other countries. They just loathed Farage. It's sort of a, a weird thing because they hated them. 
and were basically, get out, get out, get out, but they also wanted to trap them in. It was very strange. In fact, it was just perfect. Some pouty European Union politician who was chairing uh, the session then told him to take his flags and go, which, of course, was meant as an insult. But if you're Nigel Farage, it's not an insult. That's your life's mission. Look at this. Please sit down, resume your seats, put your flags away, you're leaving, and take them with you if you are leaving now. And... Goodbye. Oh, I thought you didn't want them to take their flag and go. That's a bit of a pickle there. Oh, they're having fun in the UK. I sort of wish I was there tonight. Uh, they have this special Brexit coin now, that's an image of it online, but they really have this, and isn't that wonderful, peace, prosperity, and friendship with all nations. It's very positive. The Remainers said, oh, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be like the Lord of the Flies, uh, zombie apocalypse, uh, the purge, if you leave. And no, I mean, you can, I mean, they're geographically not moving further away from Europe. They're just politically becoming distinct. I predict they'll be better friends, you know. Um, if I was in the UK, I'd get those little, I think they're half-pound coins, and I would spend them in merchants who were Remainers. How much fun would that be? Uh, Leavers wanted Big Ben de Bong for Brexit. You say that fast, eh? Big Ben de Bong for Brexit. But bureaucrats said no to the Big Ben bonging. And uh, they said it was too expensive. What? That's, that's made up, of course. That's an excuse. That's a lie. But it shows you the kind of deep state even in the bell-ringing bureaucracy, uh, that did everything they could to stop Brexit from happening for three years. It's a miracle it actually happened in the end. Um, that's got to be a sign of hope, right? In its own way, the success of Brexit and Farage in the face of such universal condemnation from the elites um, mirrors the success of Trump and his deplorables. Brexit's democratic will was frustrated for three years by the globalist left. The same forces in America who tried to smear Trump as a Russian spy for years. And when that didn't work, they tried to impeach him. All it did was make politics more sour and divided and show all of us that the establishment sort of hates us and hates our democratic voices. So when will that Brexit and Trump spirit come to Canada? That's what I want to know. Well, for now, that spirit, it's us, my friends. It's you and me. Stay with us for more. The very first day of your protest, did Reinshog accidentally run into you? Was it an accident or was it orchestrated by your parents well beforehand? I can understand why people are concerned that the premise of your school strike was never actually the innocent thing that it was. You never were actually leaving a classroom, were you? When the public relations specialist just chanced upon you, was it set up, Greta? <laughs> Greta, when you were sitting on the train, when they took a photo of you sitting on the ground, how scripted was that? Was it pre-planned? Did you know that there was going to be the blowback from the German train authority pointing out that you were actually in first class? Hey, 
What are you doing? Stop here. Don't touch me. Who do you think you are? Go ahead. Don't. No, serious. I don't care. Get the fuck off. Who do you think you are? I'm asking questions. Yes. I want to ask Greta some questions. Yes. Well, as you may know, that is an excerpt from our documentary video called Greta Inc. Of course, Greta being Greta Thunberg, the Swedish child actor who is being deployed as the saint of global warming. And by Greta Inc., we mean, well, who was really behind her? Who's pulling the strings? Who's financing the whole thing? We sent our Kean Bexie to Stockholm to find out Kean is not only the best journalist covering Greta Thunberg, but he's also the only journalist covering Greta Thunberg as a journalist as opposed to a stenographer. We called that documentary Greta Inc. to emphasize that she's part of a larger corporation that somehow manages to stay hidden from any other journalist because they're not curious about it. We called it that tongue-in-cheek, really, but alas, it's actually come true. She's incorporating and trademarking her own name like some running dog capitalist. And here to tell us all about it is the only reporter in the world who seems to be a skeptic, Kian Bexty. Kian, how you doing? Good, how are you? Good. Are you burning fossil fuels to stay warm out there? I am, and I'm filling up at the co-op as well. <laughs> now, when you were in Sweden earlier this month, it looked chilly, and I was in Denmark, which wasn't further away. It was cold. I mean, in the wintertime, it's so far north there. Uh, the sun sets around 4 p.m., you know, so it's cold all day, and then it's a long, cold night. There is no one in the north that does not use fossil fuels, including Greta Thunberg. That's just one of a hundred ways she's a fraud, isn't she? Yeah, uh, I mean, Sweden's uh, electrical grid isn't run on 100% renewables. Every time Greta Thunberg charges her phone to start tweeting, she's using uh, fossil fuels, whether she likes it or not. Um, everyone up there needs it. Everyone in Canada needs it. Everyone across the world needs uh, cheap, reliable access to uh, fuel and energy. And uh, Greta is a hypocrite in more ways than one, especially when it comes to her energy usage. Now, her whole thing, her whole power is her authenticity. And I think that she's sort of in on the trick, but I think she also is genuinely um, has raw and perhaps, well, emotions that border on mental illness. I mean, we've shown this clip a dozen times and it was in your documentary, but I want to show it again briefly. Greta Thunberg, in her own words, talking about her extreme depression, losing an enormous amount of weight, autism, Asperger's, selective mutism. Here's a quick clip in her own words. So when I was 11, I became ill. I fell into depression. I stopped talking and I stopped eating. In two months, I lost about 10 kilos of weight. Later on, I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, OCD, and selective mutism. So my theory, Kian, is that she's effective because she genuinely is in a state of panic of the world all the time. She really is depressed and she doesn't know how to handle it, so she lives her depression as a form of therapy by merging it with politics. I think she's a little bit aware of the game, but she's also a victim of it. I think they're abusing her psychologically, um, but that's why she's so powerful, because it comes across as honest, which it, which it sort of is. 
Yeah, you're right. And her father's actually admitted that on BBC, um, saying that it's like a Xanax of sorts for Greta Thunberg. She wouldn't eat, she wouldn't sleep, uh, she wouldn't talk to people um, until she started this protest outside of the Swedish parliament, which really was not a school strike like we were led to believe. It was um, allowed time off from school. She doesn't want you to know that. But uh, her father says on BBC that when um, she started protesting, in the third day of her protest, someone brought her vegan pad thai. Now, I don't know what kind of father lets their daughter eat street food handed to them from a random person, but he says that this was a huge step for her, that the, the protesting was working as a sort of therapy for her, which is a little bit unfortunate that, that she doesn't have, or at least the parents are denying her uh, typical therapy, typical means of therapy, because um, what she's doing, the side effects of what she's doing, uh, is hurting children across the world. Uh, mental illness is skyrocketing among, among children. I think it was a report out of Australia uh, kids think that the world is ending as they watch it, and uh, it's not fair to them that Greta Thunberg's therapy is being used as um, uh, Greta Thunberg's mental illness is being treated at the expense of other kids. Yeah, you know, it's uh, when you say mental illness is contagious, someone might say, "Well, that's not true. It's not like a virus." But it, but if you see other people acting out in a certain way, I mean, there is a madness of crowds, and. If you see a young person who is glorified and you see that her way of coping with this junk science panic is to say the world is ending, there's no point in going to school, we're all going to die in, is it 12 years or 10 years or 8 years or 8 months or whatever, that, I mean, it's not contagious like a virus, but to see that in a mimetic way, um, just like laughing is contagious, yawning is contagious, depression is contagious, especially when teachers teach their children, be terrified. I think it's a form of child abuse, but the reason we're talking about all this is because Greta Inc., that was the name of our documentary, she actually is incorporating and trademarking, isn't she? Yeah, she announced on uh, this huge information dump on Instagram that, among other things, she's trademarking her name, she's trademarking the term school strike for climate, She's trademarking Fridays for Future. She's really just catching it all uh, so that she can start profiting off of this. Now, she says it's going to be a nonprofit, um, but we know how the Clinton Foundation works. You, you know, you expense the lavish meals uh, and the trips across the world, and it's all run under this guise of nonprofit. The term nonprofit is really misleading to a lot of people, and people think that it's this innocent thing. But Greta Thunberg, in this post on Instagram where she says she's trademarking her name, and et cetera, she says that this nonprofit will be dispersing the money that they raise through donations, which she said just previously she wasn't accepting at all, and now apparently she is and she has been from, for some time, uh, that money is going to be dispersed to third parties, uh, which is you know another scheme that these people use to make the money untraceable. So it says, oh, we gave it to the you know, green lobby for the European Union or something like that. And who, who are the people running that? It just makes it harder and harder to trace yeah. uh, the, the paper trail when they do it like this and it's it's all part of the scheme of Greta incorporating and it's I find it really funny that not even six days after we released our documentary entitled Greta Inc she literally incorporated yeah and I'm I'm sure this will be all taken in stride I mean it's like Michael Moore the socialist activist with his three houses or Bernie Sanders the socialist the millionaire um, it, you know where normal journalists would have some scrutiny and curiosity and skepticism 
journalists turn into stenographers for these. Um, listen, I want to ask you one last thing before we let you go. Uh, I saw your videos. I'd like to share with our viewers. Um, I didn't understand this at first. There was a fence put up around a gas station to stop people going to it. And I thought, well, of course, that's the gas station. No, no, no. This was someone else putting a fence around a gas station, not the gas station. These were Unifor extremists coming to southern Alberta and literally putting a metal fence around a company they hated to stop its customers from getting in. Here, let's play a little bit of that. Hey guys, how are you? How are you? All Why? Why is that? Because you're not a journalist. <laughs> are you? Are you guys from El? Fucking assholes! Get out of here! Are you guys from Alberta? Here, you fucking right-wing assholes! Are you from Alberta? Beat it! Beat it! Is anyone here from Alberta? You right-wing assholes! Are you from Alberta? Are you from Alberta? Are you from Alberta? One day stronger! One day so these union thugs have come to Alberta from out of province to protest the co-op, which is kind of funny because normally unionists like to stick it to corporate elites. But in fact, they're actually just sticking it to the owners of this co-op. The co-op operates as a cooperative, so everyone sort of pitches in uh, to the business and the ownership is distributed amongst the customers. It's really weird that they're protesting it. And it is even more weird that they're coming from out of province to hurt businesses, local businesses here in Alberta. Well, Kian, um, I mean, it took me a while to understand. I remember you were telling me this on the phone. Uh, what you were saying, is it okay for me to go over a fence into the property? I was saying, well, if it's a fence, you can't go into the property. I thought the fence was put up by the property owner and you were asking, can I trespass? I was saying, no, no, no. But it was the opposite. You wanted yeah. to get lawful entry into the gas station, but it was illegal Unifor extremists that put up this fence and the cops just were fine with it. That's what boggled my mind. The cops really let a bunch of foreign strangers put a fence up around an Alberta business. Yeah, it, I couldn't believe it myself and I wasn't really sure what the situation was because there's no reporters there uh, and any reporter that um, was there beforehand because there, there, there was a, a few the day before I went uh, but they weren't really showing what was going on there and I was kind of confused as to why we weren't getting the full story and then I remembered that most journalists are represented by by Unifor the right. exact same union that is protesting there so I show up with uh, with a bale truck for uh, feeding cattle and a ladder in case I had to climb over one of these eight-foot fences. Luckily, these unionists don't know how to put up fences, so I just kind of walked through a ditch uh, with my jerry can of fuel to make the point uh, that those union thug tactics aren't going to work on the customers uh, from from Carsland and, and the greater southern Alberta area because this specific fuel hub that Unifor is protesting at is a fuel hub where fuel comes from the Regina refinery, which is sort of the nexus point of, of their protest. It has nothing to do with anything in Alberta. Uh, what happens in Alberta doesn't affect the wages or, or working regime of these uh, union workers. Uh, but for some reason, they've come to take out their anger on local Albertans who have nothing to do with their plight. So they've put up this eight-foot fence around the property, inhibiting trucks and vehicles uh, from getting in. There's one co-op truck that uh, is used to, it goes to the hub, fills up with fuel, and then it takes it to a local gas station uh, somewhere in southern Alberta. There's a truck in the lineup. There's a, about half a dozen of them. One of them has been there waiting since Monday to fill up. Uh, and slowly but surely, 
uh, gas stations in southern Alberta are going to run out of fuel and it's going to materially hurt the businesses, uh, be it farmers, be it tr- small time truckers uh, who just need to fill up with fuel to, you know, we're on the cusp of calving season here. They'll, they'll need to fill up with fuel to, to feed their cattle and, and to drive to Lethbridge and whatever it is to take their kids to soccer, uh, to, to hockey practice. Um, but these union thugs, for some reason, are stopping them from doing it and taking their anger out on Albertans, and it's just not fair. You know, fair. The, the cops you talk to there, the cops who said they're going to do nothing, um, they're paid by taxpayers to enforce the law. They're called law enforcement officers. And if they won't enforce the law, um, in this case, against trespass, you could even call it false imprisonment, perhaps, um, one day someone who's in a bad situation will take the law in their own hands in a vigilante way. Now, that might just be driving over this poorly erected fence to get their gas, but it could be something more. And in that case, I think the in fact, right now, the scrutiny should turn to the RCMP. Why are they standing down? It reminds me completely of when they stood by as that farm invasion robbery uh, of 50 or 60 environmental extremists attacked a turkey farm. Well, they're doing the same, uh, you know, a dozen union extremists are doing the same in southern Alberta to a gas station, and the RCMP is just sitting around. It's bringing the police into disrepute. And um, I thought we were done with this after the Turkey invasion. I think there's a problem here. Last word to you, Kian. I think you're absolutely right about that. And it actually has led to a bit of pushing and shoving between a co-op customer and a union thug. Uh, they were trying to stop his car from truck from getting in. They moved the fence. We actually have that video uh, if you'd like to play it. But yeah, it's, um, take a look. I mean, I'm not for physical assault, but I tell you, if a guy's blocking a truck and if he's a trespasser himself and he's got an illegal fence, you know, I don't prescribe violence. I certainly don't. Not that that guy was hurt, but you can understand why a guy who needs to fill up with gas because maybe his car's going to run out of gas or he needs to, whatever reason, you can understand the frustration there. And I blame the cops who are right there allowing that to happen. I'm not for violence, but I can understand it when some union boss who has no connection to the location is stopping a a local community from living. Very, very frustrating. Well, listen, Kean, stay safe, and uh, I look forward to your next journalistic adventures, and have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Ezra. All right, there you have it. Kean Bexty, whether it's Stockholm, Sweden, or Carsland, Alberta, he's on the scene. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about Trudeau's plan to regulate media on the Internet. Leon writes, Holy cow, they're following China's totalitarian ideas. Soon enough, we won't be able to criticize government officials. Yeah, I mean, 
and the funny thing is I, I report on these things, but occasionally I become the subject of reports, right? I mean, um, I really was summoned to a high security office to be interrogated for an hour, so I'm not just writing about these things, I'm, I'm like getting my leg caught in these leg hole traps, but so far I've been able to pull, pry them open. But, you know, we really do need more allies here. Um, it's been, what, 48 hours or so since we released my hidden camera footage of my interrogation, and I cannot name one elected MP who has even said something as meek as, well, I don't really agree with everything Ezra Levant and the rebels say, mandatory disclaimer, but uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with them being grilled over a book. Like, not even something that lukewarm and tepid. I, I think that's what's pitiful. Like, uh, of course, the leftist civil libertarians don't care, but where are the cons if, if you can't even marshal yourself to speak out against a, an hour-long interrogation by federal investigators, we're doomed. Well, that sounds a little negative. Keep hope alive, right? Chris writes, regulate equals control. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I never took Latin, but uh, I'm sort of an amateur dabbler. And regulate, uh, I think, comes from, you know, R-E-G, uh, Rex, uh, King, you know, to be a, a dominant um, royalty over us, to regulate us. I think that's where regulate comes from. On the conservative leadership race and having a bilingual leader, Grant writes, I would rather have a prime minister who speaks economics than French or English. I can always get a translation if I need one, but a PM who is not fluent in economics is a danger to the country. My advice to the media, focus on the meat, not the wrapping paper. Well, look, of course it's better if someone can speak to the whole country. And I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not a supporter of official state bilingualism. I'm just saying as a practical matter, um, to be able to speak to a quarter of the country in their native tongue, obviously it's a plus. It's a plus uh, during a campaign, and it's a plus when you're governing. And, you know, I consume a lot of media in a day. I read a lot of newspapers. I'm not reading the French language stuff because I don't really speak it. So, yeah, it's better. But that should not be a litmus test. Otherwise, you're locking out huge swaths of the population. And they're trying to move that litmus test to other things, too, like the Supreme Court. Um, no, I mean, there was a time when you had an Anglo prime minister with sort of a Quebec deputy. And frankly, let's be honest, uh, Stephen Harper never really had a lot of support in Quebec, and yet he managed to get a majority government. Uh, maybe that's the way to go. Well, my friends, thank you for being with us all week. What a busy week it was. And I can assure you we will have more for you next week. Until then, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. Thank you.